If you have a question like, where will we be celebrating uh, Pentecost this week? I have an answer for that. In the garage at 7 o'clock Wednesday night. So feel free, all ages, to come and celebrate the birthday of the Torah and of the Holy Spirit coming to live within us on Wednesday night. If you have any questions about what's going on with this guy in front of you with a book in his hand, well, at this point in the service, we'd like to open up the Word of God, and I'd like to share a few thoughts. Why do we open up the Bible? Because we believe at Crossroads that people wrote the Bible, but God inspired every part of it. And with God inspiring every part of the Bible, then it's, it's got a life. of it's, it's alive. And for thousands of years, people have been looking to this book to, to be alive for them and speak life to them and be sharp and build us up and encourage us and comfort us. And one of the things that the Bible does, like a mirror, you hold it in front of you and it shows ugliness. <laughs> At least that's what my mirrors do at home. It shows brokenness. It shows our pain. But it also shows God's answer to all of our brokenness and pain and ugliness by sending his son, Jesus, to fix it, to die for us. We call that the gospel. And if you ever wondered what part of this book that uh, the, the, the life of Jesus Coming to the world is in. There are four sections dedicated to that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about three quarters of the way through the Bible, if you have one. And for the past few months, we've been studying the gospel according to Luke. So please turn to Luke 13. And if you're tired of Luke, we will not be studying it this summer. And so this is the last time we'll be looking, listening to Luke for a few months. And uh, for the summer, we'll be looking into uh, Hebrews, a chapter in Hebrews about faith. And um, so if this is the last week, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a holiday weekend, and we're all feeling kind of good. Uh, let me just share with you some things, big picture that's been going on with Luke. Because I know what you're thinking. Why do we open up this book and we look at like one paragraph and then just read it and then have all these thoughts out of that one paragraph if it was written with intentional writing by somebody? We don't do that with any other book. Nobody's picking up the Lord of the Rings and just looking in the middle chapter and saying, wow, that was a really great chapter and I mean, I guess you could. It probably would be a really good chapter, but you'd miss the thrust of what Tolkien's... You'd miss the, the flow of the characters and the building and the, and the dynamics. And so I think we can lose something by just picking up a book, looking at a verse, and not thinking about kind of the major themes that's been going on for just a few minutes. Luke wrote over half of the New Testament. So we can get kind of lost in a little bit of his words. I mean, ch chapter like one has like 80 verses. Whew. So I think that I can uh, help us see some, some really cool themes going on that we've already learned in Luke with just a few minutes of your time. 
I have this invisible uh, outline that I'll put up. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I do it like this. Birth, voice, voice, Jerusalem, death and resurrection. And that's to scale. Verse, voice, voice, Jerusalem, death and resurrection. The first three chapters of Luke, you may remember, is telling the dramatic and miraculous story of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. When you get to chapter 3, there's a voice. Jesus gets baptized and a voice calls out from heaven, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am pleased. Does anybody remember that? Remember, please, because after that's the genealogy. And I stood up here and read that genealogy. Someone remember that, okay? It's the bravest thing I've ever done. <laughs> after that voice, things start to change. And Jesus becomes someone who, be, who starts to minister to uh, the area that he lived in, which is in the northern part of Israel, the Galilee area. All of the classic Jesus moments happen in that next season. I mean, think about it. Feeding 5,000 people with some fish and some bread. Walking on water, calming the storm, healing this gal's son, uh, uh, raising her from the dead, raising this guy's daughter from the dead, healing all kinds of people, turning water into wine. All happens after that voice in the northern part of uh, Israel. But then, when chapter 9 happens, there's another voice, and things start to change. Have you ever heard of a, of a water, what's the term? With, what? Watershed, see. Speaking of watershed moments, when a river divides because of elevation or something and never is the same again. When I got married to this gal right here, that's a watershed moment. Is anybody graduating high school Watershed moment. Anybody graduating college this year? Anybody getting married this year? Anybody having kids graduating college this year? Or are your kids' kids? Or having kids? These are watershed moments. Jesus has a watershed moment when, when this second voice happens. Because everything's about to change. In chapter 9, he goes up this mountain, hill, and his clothes change into this brilliant light. Uh, Tron comes to mind for some reason, but probably cooler. If you can get cooler than Tron. And he sees Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And he starts talking with them about his departure. Then a voice speaks. And says, this is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. It's different than the voice before. And there's a lot of significance behind that. But at face value, something's different from here on out. Listen to him. At the end of chapter 9, there's a shift. Not, chapter 9, verse 51, it reads like this. And the time had come for Jesus to be taken to heaven. So he set his face towards Jerusalem. Last I checked, Jerusalem is not heaven. He knew that he was going to die in Jerusalem. 
listen to him. Why? Because if I knew that I was going to die, the things that I was about to say would be very calculated and important to me. Listen to him. Jesus begins to have these conversations where he speaks to all kinds of different people. Sometimes he speaks to people who are just passing by in a crowd. Maybe that's you. Where he just says things like, you need to get right with God and you need to follow me and you need to, to, uh, to, 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 to live a faithful life if you're going to do this. Be a disciple. He speaks to disciples. He gives them positive uh, examples of how to be faithful and how to be a disciple. He speaks to people who resist him. He speaks to them and baffles them over and over by his love for God and his pure interpretation of what that looks like. Now Luke shouts this. And you always see that phrase, whisper the Bible whispers, or shout the Bible shouts. Luke shouts this because, remember my scale, ten chapters out of the book of Luke are dedicated to Jesus in this journey to Jerusalem. And what he says. Notice how when he finally gets to Jerusalem in chapter 19 and verse 48, it says what? The teachers, the scribes, and the chief priests were seeking to kill him, but they could not because the people were hanging on his every word. This is my son. Listen to him. And we're all on the edge of our seats. It's a very critical time for Jesus to share some things that are really important. That being said, please turn to Luke chapter 13 and verse 22. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages talking, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, say, sir, open the door. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you, or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. I'll just trans- re- retranslate that. There will be great sorrow, crying, and massive frustration. You will feel very sad and frustrated when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you are thrown out. People are going to come from the east and the west and the north and south to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Then at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, 
Get out of here. Go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people. Today, tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. At any rate, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are unwilling. And look, your house has become desolate. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is the words of God is be strengthened. Let me just say a prayer for us. Lord, help us to be good soil and to be able to see you. I have full confidence that you can speak through your word. Even if I read just one word out of it, you can. You've been doing that over and over and over again. So here we are again, saying, come fill us up and teach us and grow us. Show us more about who you are and how to live our lives here in 2015 America. I know that you will. I thank you for that. Amen. So does anyone need any elaboration on these verses? I have some thoughts prepared. But let me remind you of kind of the main skeleton of what's going on. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Some random person asks him a question. He then responds to the question. Out of that response, someone felt the need to tell him that Herod was seeking to kill him. He responds to that by not responding and says some things he's thinking out loud about Jerusalem. And then he ends with Psalm 118. Good? Well, I have some questions. Because I read something like this and I think, what in the world is, is going on here? <laughs> and we're at a little bit of a disadvantage being in 2015 Grand Rapids. And you kind of just have to agree with that. I mean, this is an ancient story. It's ancient. It's 2,000 years ago. It's in an ancient language. They have an ancient history. They have, they have a history that we don't even know about. They have all kinds of ancient customs and things going on. And we'd be... At a major loss to just sit there and think, I can totally just see what's going on without even thinking about any of that stuff. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I referenced Moses and Elijah on the mountain before, did anyone's heart start to pitter-patter or, or sing it all? Eh, it's Moses and Elijah. They're the Bible people. I mean, okay, whatever. What if I said it's George Washington and Martin Luther King Jr. that he saw on the mountain? We'd be like, whoa. What do they got cooking? Wonder what they were talking about. It's just a different history, and, and it's things that, that, that have different context. We also are at a disadvantage because words change over years and become to mean sometimes something totally different. For example, like the word literally has changed over the last few years to mean something totally different than what it used to mean. 
I literally could not get out of bed this morning. Okay. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Um, saved. My first question is kind of a two-part question. And I'm thinking of verse 23 here. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? What does saved mean? And why would he ask Jesus? Well, it's obvious. We know what saved means. Saved. Are you saved? I'm saved. You get saved. Have you ever heard of Billy Graham? We know what getting saved is. The tricky part is the Bible interprets this word in several different ways. Right? Like I can think of a lot of different ways that, that saved means what we assume it means naturally. Uh, Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved. That's the saved I'm talking about. Or uh, Peter says in Acts, uh, there is no other name on heaven or on earth or in the earth by which men are saved but through Jesus. I'm saved. If I call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you should be saved. Does that mean, did David mean saved like that when he wrote Psalms about save us, O Lord, grant us success? Uh, maybe. Did this random person walking up to Jesus know that Jesus was going to die and, and, and save people? How do I know I'm saved? Because Jesus, because I'm a blood-bought, saved person. But Jesus hasn't made any blood purchases yet. And so how do this person know that he's the one who has the answer about being saved? And it's only fair to ask the question, maybe... He means something different. And so I want to present an idea about what this could mean based on just getting immersed in probability, like probable ideas of how this could mean something different. And if you accept that, awesome. If you don't accept that and you want to go, this is classic saved, and all he wants to talk about is the afterlife and the age to come, that's also fine. But you might miss out on something very relevant to our everyday life. And you might be finding yourself constantly thinking that Jesus is just somebody that I talk to about the age to come. And has nothing to do with my life right now. Saved. Well, one way that we can start to interpret things like this is by putting ourselves, immersing ourselves into the culture and, and into the, the norms of what's going on and seeing if there's any other possibilities of what this person is talking about. So put yourself in the shoes of this person who will remain nameless, unless you want to name them. What's the first Hebrew name that comes to mind? Bob? The first, no, the first Hebrew name. Joseph. Okay, Joseph. Sorry, said Joseph was first. Okay, Joseph, my friend Joseph, comes up to Jesus and says, Will there be a few who are saved? Well, let's get into Joseph's shoes. All right, let's get into Joseph's sandals and walk around a little bit here. Let me remind you Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, but he's not the only one. 
Luke has us aimed at the Passover feast. That's where we're all going. We're on a pilgrimage. The Passover is one of three feasts that it required that you make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of liturgy and a lot of things that go into that pilgrimage. Feast, I think feast is on the mind. <laughs> feast is on the mind for Jesus and feast is on the mind for Joseph. Passover is all over this text. If you just look for it. It's oozing with feast. Look at verse 35. Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a very important song for the Passover liturgy. And for the the tabernacles, the Feast of Booths liturgy. Think Christmas carol. What's the most famous Christmas carol? Not a trick question. Where do you think it is? Silent night. Okay. This silent night is to Christmas as uh, Psalm 118 is to Passover as silent night is to Christmas. Think about that. When we're in that season before Christmas and that silver bells and jingle, all these songs are going on that put us in this mood and put us in this uh, Christmas mindset. They're singing this song. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll circle back to that. Look at verse 34. What does Jesus mean by I would be a hen covering over these baby chicks and your house has been left desolate? Well, that's Passover all over again. Anyone who's not covered by God, his house is going to receive death and become desolate. Look at verse 29. What does your Bible say? People come from the north, from the south, from the east and the west to what? Does anybody have ESV or NAS? Recline. To recline at the table of the feast of the kingdom of God. Has anybody been to a traditional Jewish Seder? What's one of the questions that gets asked? Why is this night different than all of the rest? Why do we eat sitting up every other night, but tonight we recline? Recline. The response Because tonight, we celebrate freedom. Feast is on the mind. The Passover feast is the most freeing, celebrating uh, the independence of this nation festival. What's wrong with this picture? Jesus is traveling in a culture with a group of people who are not free. Rome. Imagine waking up every morning to the foot soldiers tromping around and being so aggravated that your land is occupied right now and being so offended by people. That's why the sinner and the tax collector, that phrase exists. Because both of those people are okay helping out Rome. And it's offensive. Detestable. Violent. Cross-inventing. Torture expert. 
pagan Gentile Rome is in my promised land. I detest the way that they look down at us uh, from their high chariots. I detest the way that they treat Shabbat and how they never uh, respect and, and desecrate that holy day. I detest the way they treat the elderly and mis- and abuse the young and charge us so much money for no reason. I detest them. You want to celebrate Passover? Imagine... China taking over the United States, but leaving some form of self-governing uh, uh, possibilities here and giving us a lot of slack. It just costs a lot more to live here. What do you do on the 4th of July? How long would it take for you to say enough is enough? I'm not celebrating Independence Day when we are not independent. I'm not lighting another firework. I'm not singing another Credence Clearwater Revival song. I'm not celebrating this. It should be different. And who's with me? Let's take back the land. How long would it take for you to get so frustrated that you start to think, let's look for somebody that can that can fight China. There'd be a few who are saved, so frustrated, so aggravated. I can't celebrate this feast one more day. Maybe some of these thoughts are going on in Joseph's mind. I think it's probable and very likely, much more so than Christians saved. But even if it is likely, that still doesn't answer the question, why would he ask Jesus? What's Jesus got to do with this? What, is this just some kind of topic that comes up? Maybe. Was Jesus talking about it before and he just didn't catch it? Maybe. Or maybe he sees Jesus as a potential leader to lead a rebellion. Maybe. Has anybody ever heard of the Zealot Movement? If you haven't, look it up. There's a majorly majorly accepted movement in the time of Jesus by so many people who are sick of celebrating the 4th of July when their land is under occupation. And their theology is that God condones violence when it's in the name of holiness and freedom. And their George Washington is a guy named Phineas, who, in the book of Numbers, saw people desecrating the, the tabernacle and saw people sleeping around with a nation that they shouldn't have been sleeping around with and said to his peers, I'm sick of this. Grab a sword. And then it says it was a credit to him as righteousness... For the violence that he did. That's a scary person to have as your mascot. Zealots are wanting wanting somebody to lead a, a revolt. 
They're wanting to follow somebody. And I wonder if this person could be retranslated as walking up to Jesus and saying, how many of us are going to get out of this life? Because I'm here, I'm ready for orders, and I'm just wondering how many of us are going to get out of here alive. Will there be few who are saved? Could it be that somebody, for some reason, saw Jesus as a zealous, confident leader? As somebody who they could actually follow? It's not that far of a stretch. The Apostle Paul was, was a... He almost come out and said that he was a zealot in Philippians chapter 3. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Pharisee according to the law, to zeal, what does he say? Persecuting of the church. He could have just said, Pharisee according to the law, I'm a zealot. Could Jesus be perceived as a zealot leader? Well, not for nothing. Jesus is sending out 72 people recently saying to villages, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get right before the Lord. Get ready. Jesus of Nazareth sent me to tell you that. So everywhere he goes, thousands of people are around him. Rod said, even a few weeks ago, 5,000 men that he fed, maybe those are zealot, uh, zealot guys. <laughs> zealots. Zealots. Not for nothing. Think about it. Why did Pilate put Barabbas next to Jesus? Barabbas, the zealot leader of, an insurg- of, of a revolt. Why did Gamaliel compare Jesus' movement in Acts chapter 5 to Judas of Galilee, the zealot leader? Jesus, the man making a whip. Kicking over money tables in the temple. Saying, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Two of his best friends are full-blown zealots. Two of Jesus' disciples we would consider terrorists. Could be that Jesus is seen as a leader, potentially a next king. Why else? Look at verse 31. Why else would Herod want to kill him? Why else after this conversation does somebody say, now that you mention it, Herod was trying to kill you. Herod is not threatened by the rabbi who performs miracles. Herod is not threatened by somebody that can turn water into wine. That's awesome. Herod is not threatened by somebody who's a Torah scholar, a sage. Herod is threatened by competition. He learned that from his dad. When Jesus was born, the king of the Jews was born, his dad said, I gotta kill him. That's why I love Jesus' response. Tell me something I don't know. Herod wants to kill me. He's been trying to kill me from my the day I was born. Does anybody know what a fox is to a Hebrew mind? In European-based languages, a fox is uh, sly, clever, crafty, right? Witty, shrewd. But that's a serpent. That's a snake to the Hebrew mind. That was the most crafty animal in all of the garden. Be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. What's a fox? A fox is always compared to an airhead, to an incompetent person. 
somebody that can't get it done, somebody that's ill-equipped, small fry. Jesus responds to somebody who wants to be king. Foxes are always compared in proverbial statements to a lion. My favorite one is, I'd rather be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. I mean, I'd rather be a small part of something courageous and brave than a big part of something pointless. And look at this man trying to be king. And the mascot for the kingly lion is the lion. And Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, comes to the land and says, you go tell that fox. You go tell little Herod, who couldn't kill his way out of a paper bag, I'm raising up an army of people who are broken and needy, and I'm showing them what the kingdom of God is like by healing them and touching them with the peace of God, and I'm going to be in Jerusalem when I go to Jerusalem. The reason why I labor all of this point, the reason why this really challenges me, is because I see in this story people who think that Jesus could be king. And all the while, I think Herod lives inside of me. Do we see Jesus as a king? Or do we want to kill him? Because I think it would be easy for us Moment by moment, day by day, to say, Jesus, I'm a king. I'm the king. Kill him. God here. Don't tell me how to live. Just tell me how to get to heaven. You're not my king now. You're just Jesus of heaven. I'm the king now. I make my own decisions. I make up how I live my life. I make up how I feel, what I feel makes up how I live my life. I'm the king. Herod is alive and well in my heart. William Borden, a missionary from the early 1900s, once said, in the heart of every man is a throne and a cross. You just have to choose who's where. Because if you're sitting on the throne, you're saying kill him. But Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow me, you pick up your cross and follow me on the throne of your life. I want to be the king. He was perceived as a king. And I'm so weary of living in a day where he's, he's just always on trial. Maybe I'll follow Jesus with some proof. Maybe with some evidence. Maybe I'll follow Jesus if it's the right time. Jesus says, no, if you love me, you will obey me. So I'm the king. He showed us how to obey. Remember Philippians 2, verse 8? He humbled himself to obedience, even to the death on a cross. Something to consider. Maybe Jesus is a king. Maybe he's perceived as a king. But he doesn't answer like a king. He doesn't answer like a zealot king. He answers the question that I'm arguing sounds like, how many of us are going to make it out of this alive, Jesus? He answers it with, don't worry about it, because there's a feast coming. He answers it like a Messiah would answer it. So I'm just going to cut to the chase. There's two things that I think, that I think are very challenging from Jesus' answer to this person. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. 
because many, I tell you, will try and won't be able to. When the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, saying, open it for us, but he will, he will tell you I don't know you. We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I have no clue where you're coming from or who you are. Depart from me, evildoers. There will be major sorrow and frustration when you see this feast going on. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, but you're not there. Indeed, the first will be last, and the last will be first. What I find really challenging about that, number one, is I did not grow up dwelling and meditating on a feast to come. And, and that changes a little bit of, of my articulation of, of, of the age to come and what I do in the meantime. It really does. Did you know that the feast comes up out of Jesus' mouth so many times? We'll see this fall as we go through the parables. Nine out of ten parables end in a banquet. Did you know that this is all over the Bible, that there's a feast in the age to come? That it's in rabbinic literature that there's a feast to come? They even say, my favorite line, God will bring out wine that's been fermenting from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Whew. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds good. The Dead Sea Scrolls are talking about a messianic banquet that's to come. Without getting into all of that, but just looking at the idea that Jesus talks about the age to come being a banquet. What I love about thinking about that is, is that this God is going to provide for me. And I don't have to provide. I love going to a banquet and I don't have to provide anything. I'm just invited to get there. My favorite banquet verse is from Isaiah chapter 25 or 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I, on this mountain, will prepare for you a feast of the finest meats and the choice wine. The very finest wine and the finest meats. He repeats himself there just so that we know. I will de destroy the shroud that is between all peoples, like lifting a veil on a bride. I will swallow up death, and I will wipe away every tear. Where? At my banquet. That challenges how hard my life can be, how the heaviness of our lives at times, the tears that we cry, of us, the sorrow of death. He says, at my feast that you're supposed to be waiting for, I'm going to fix that. Is it in your theology? Is it in your heart? What if I told you that God has a banquet waiting for you? I'd probably line up and say, Reporting for duty. How many of us are going to make it out of this alive? Second thing that I notice here is that this is a verse that has caused a lot of weird feelings about maybe I'm not going to make it through the narrow door. Well, what's the narrow door anyways? You've got to figure this out. And I interpret the narrow door the same way that I interpret the master of the house response to the people outside. What does he say? I don't know you. You might know me, but I don't know you. 
I could go to the White House right now, buzz myself in and say, I'm here for Obama's birthday party. I know him. And the Secret Service would say, no, uh, does he know you? I don't think so. Okay, so you're not coming in here. And it'd be totally acceptable. I might be very sorry, and I might be very frustrated. There might be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it's not going to be a big clueless moment for me. So that same principle applies to the narrow door. How do I get known is how I get through the door. And how I am known is, is because I is because I accepted Jesus who said, I long to cover you with my wings like a mother hen covers over her chicks. I long to put myself over you, to cover you in my blood, so that when you walk up to the door, it's very obvious that you know me and I know you. Because I bought you with my blood. I shed my blood so that you could come in through me. The narrow door is Jesus. And we can enter into the banquet only through him. What's the striving? The striving is, is that's hard to accept. Make every effort to the deepest places of your heart to accept that you can only get through that narrow door by the blood of Jesus. And it is very difficult to, to work hard at learning how to rest in that. So there's some striving to be done. Working hard at believing that through Jesus I can make it in. Indeed, the first became last so that the last could become first. That's so hard to believe. So as we close, I just want to offer you some two things to think about. We'll have a moment for Greg to play some music and uh, for you to consider some thoughts. And then we're going to take communion, if you are wanting to take communion. So consider these two thoughts. Uh, The two big things that I've been laboring is, number one, who's on the throne and who's on the cross? Have you become slowly and little by little a little Herod who's threatened, who's threatened by Jesus? My pride is threatened by Jesus. My selfishness is threatened by Jesus. I want to be in charge of my security, so-called, and my happiness, so-called. And if you put him to death moment by moment, Jesus wasn't the king that these people wanted him to be, but he's the savior that we needed him to be. And he says to people who reject him, who stone the prophets and kill people that's sent to help, he says, I have compassion for you. I long to gather you in. It's not too late. Come on, I will gather you in and I will cover you. I want to be king. I want to be king in your life. I want to be savior of your marriage. I want to be king of your relationship. I want to be king of your bedroom. I want to be king of your purity. I want to be king of your life. Don't kill me. Accept me. Number two, 
Do you feel this morning like the door is locked? Would your faith and religion and relationship with God be, uh, be summed up by the words weeping and gnashing of teeth or major sorrow and frustration? Lots of tears and lots of frustration. Trying to open up the door, but it's locked and you can't get in and everybody else is on the inside while you're on the outside wishing that you were right with God. You're probably not striving hard enough at believing that Jesus bought you. And today I want to tell you out of the deepest, most pleasurable place in my heart that the door is wide open. It's a narrow door, but it's wide open. And you can fit through it. You can walk through this door, and, and Jesus is welcoming all of us to come in by paying for us with his life. And if you believe that Jesus died for you and shed his blood for you, then I want to encourage you to celebrate communion this morning. Celebrate the banquet that Jesus brings to us now. He was at a feast the last night of his life, and he lifted up the bread and said, this is my body that's broken for you, and this is my blood on this glass of wine shed for you. And if you would just receive that, that's the feast of the Lord. That's the Messianic banquet. Let's consider these things. Uh, I'm really struck by uh, what 